Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Lara Netting about her new book, A Perpetual Fire, John C. Ferguson and His Quest for Chinese Art and Culture. This came out in 2013 with the Hong Kong University Press. Now, as you'll see from the conversation to come, this... Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Lara Netting about her new book, A Perpetual Fire, John C. Ferguson and His Quest for Chinese Art and Culture. This came out in 2013 with the Hong Kong University Press. Now, as you'll see from the conversation to come, this is a book that takes us into not just the emergence of an idea of Chinese art in the discourse of the early uh, 20th century and late 19th century, but also the life of a man, a man who began from rather humble origins in Ontario to a very uh, relatively poor rural family and wound up becoming one of the foremost experts um, of a sort on Chinese art in the early to mid 20th century internationally. So Ferguson's life and career takes us into not just the emergence of a discourse and a practice of collecting Chinese art, and it'll it'll give us insights into things like the collections of the Freer and Sackler Gallery, the, the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, but it also takes us into the kind of struggles over some of the basic elements that we might take for granted when we look at a painting in a museum, such as, is this a forgery? How does one go about deciding when one purchases a, um, a painting or an object, whether it is actually the work of the author that's been ascribed to it, how to tell that, whether that's even important, or whether a really, really good forgery or really good later adaptation or interpretation can itself be a beautiful um, object and representative of a certain um, important category within Chinese art. So it's not just the making of collections that we see happening over the course of this book, it's also the making of a kind of aesthetic vocabulary vocabulary in a kind of aesthetic sense in a really interesting and very um, sort of human-based way. Over the course of the book, we also learn a whole lot about some really fascinating kinds of objects, including rubbings, including um, indexes, which actually take on a very material um, cast here in the book, the making of an of a index. Um, what kinds of physical processes did that involve for Ferguson? And we also get to know um, somebody who's just a really interesting person full of really interesting stories. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and I hope you have a chance to pick up the book because there's a lot more going on than what we had a chance to talk about. Enjoy and thanks for listening.
I'm here today to talk with Lara Netting about her new book, A Perpetual Fire, John C. Ferguson and His Quest for Chinese Art and Culture. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. Lara, thanks for taking the time to talk with me and talk with me on Labor Day of all things. So thanks for giving up some of your holiday for this. It's really a pleasure to have you on the channel. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to be talking about the book. So, Lara, could you start us off um, by kind of leading us into the book by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? So, specifically, how did you come to work on the history of art and modern China? Well, I'm fascinated by art objects, and part of that is just an emotional, I love to look at beautiful things, so I wanted to keep on doing that. And at the same time, I just go to history. I feel like the discipline of history gives me the most satisfying answers. So even as an undergraduate, I wrote on Chinese woodblock prints, and it was really the prints looking at them that gave me that, that final climactic answer. So at graduate school, I was thinking along the same lines. And I think you could say I went even deeper into the, that approach, in a sense, looking at the history of collections of Chinese art. So we've got both the answers that the objects were giving me and then the answers that collections were giving me. And I think that gave a great window onto modern China. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And if you hear meowing in the background, that's my cat thinking that you just gave a really fantastic answer. She's oh, like, good. She's <laughs> like, meow, that makes me want to study art in modern China, mommy. So the book that we're talking about today explores the life, the career, and the work of a man named John Ferguson, and it uses Ferguson's life and work as a window into the history of the notion and the practices of what came to be called Chinese art in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it does a whole lot more than that, too, and hopefully we'll get to a bunch of that over the course of the conversation. So why Ferguson, Lara? How did you come to decide to work on him and his collections as the focus of your research? As I was looking for a dissertation topic, reading pretty much all that was out there on the history of Chinese art collection in the last 200 years, I came across twice an author saying, well, there there was this guy, John Ferguson, and it was really incredible the way he understood Chinese connoisseurship, but we really don't know much about him. And then again, well, what a fascinating character, but not much is known about his life. And reading that, I thought, all right, let's, let's see what we can get. And it came clear that there were sources. And in fact, there ended up being even more sources than I than I found. But it looked like, okay, this is going to be a viable topic. Let's see what's so fascinating about it. So some of those, um, since you brought up the sources, let's actually talk about that a little bit. You speak early on in the introduction of the book, I think, about some of the most important collections and archives that you worked with to develop this story. You mentioned the Arthur M. Sackler Gallery archives. You mentioned the Freer Gallery of Art archives. And you also mentioned Ferguson's private collection and library that are preserved at Nanjing University. So we'll talk about a little bit more about the, um, the genesis and emergence of Ferguson's collection later on. But could you maybe 
um, talk with us a little bit about some of those archives and materials. What were some of the most important or notable or transformative moments in working with these archives for you? And um, how, what were some of the most important ways that they shaped the story? Well, to start with the, the simplest archive for me to access and to use, it was the, definitely the Arthur M. Sackler and Freer Gallery of Art Archives. That's one, one place. And they're just so welcome. So when I first approached them as just a beginning graduate student to see what I could find, even that was a productive trip, looking at letters that had been donated by Ferguson's grandchildren. And these were mainly letters that he wrote to his daughter Florence and then some of his other children. And they wrote really often. I mean, sometimes twice a week, he would write to his daughter and describe what was happening politically, or did he get to his desk to work on that article he wanted to work on? Did he visit this person? And he did go to tea there. So really detailed. And the wonderful thing about them is I could sometimes get the specific collecting details I wanted. And sometimes I just got this growing picture of what Ferguson was like. And I feel sometimes like there were, I won't, I won't say two or three Fergusons, but these different aspects to his character. So it was Ferguson the father, Ferguson the collector, Ferguson the political advisor. And I really loved having those letters to read and find out about Ferguson the person and the father. Mm-hmm. And... Just wondering if I should move on to Nanjing or keep on talking about oh, the career, but oh, I think yeah. we'll... Mm-hmm. Um, Whatever you feel inspired to do. As I worked at the Freer, they actually organized the letters even better. They were in the process when I started. So I kept going back and probably you've had the same experience. You've read a letter, you've taken the notes, perhaps copied it, but then you got date. Maybe it's not 1919. Maybe it's 1909. Is it filed in the right place? His handwriting was not easy to read. So I'd go back and another part of the story would snap into focus. So I'm glad that the archives were so close um, to me in New York and also that they were so welcoming and the material was so rich. Nanjing was a very different experience. I knew that his collection was there, so his art objects. And I set aside five months, a semester, to be there and do my research. And at first, they said, sure, you know, come in and see our museum. It's not usually open to the public, but we'll open it up for you. So I walked around, and there are some objects on display. Definitely not all of them, but some of the most important pieces. And then that was done in just a couple of days. But... I had five months there, so I sat in their library, and I read the catalog of the collection, and I read another book, and I read another book, and I kept asking them, well, I have this English catalog of this collection. It was at the Freer Archives, and I know they talk about this photograph album, this album of rubbings, this bronze rubbing. Can I see them? Where are they? Oh, well, you know, they're packed away. We don't know where they are. But I think finally, me sitting there in their library, the managers at the museum, the staff, 
thought, okay, well, let's, let's show her a few things. And those were the best days of research. We, we did it as a team. I would look at things as they were with me and take photographs if they allowed of certain pages. But what I saw there was not just objects that worked on view in the museum, but also these scrapbooks that he'd put together chronological, but also organized by subject. And what they had in them was, I went to so-and-so's house and I looked at these paintings and he told me they would cost this much. And the next day I walked back and I ended up buying these two. And so these wonderful notes about how he'd done his collecting, who he'd met, and also newspaper clippings, translations that friends did for him and Without those scrapbooks, the story just wouldn't be the same. So I feel really lucky that, that uh, the staff at Nanjing showed me those. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned starting to work with these archives as a graduate student. And in fact, um, this monograph began its earliest life as a dissertation. So can you talk a little bit about that transformation? Were there any major um, reorganizations, epiphanies, or um, otherwise major uh, changes or transformations in the project from one form to the other? It kept in a lot of ways, the same structure as the dissertation. But uh, there were a few um, changes I made that also changed the story. And I think the most important was after finishing the dissertation, uh, just a couple, a year or so later, I was a fellow at the Metropolitan Museum for one year. And that's the most important group of they own the most important group of paintings and also bronzes that Ferguson bought for an American museum. So that was a chance to look again at their archives that I used, look again at the paintings, and unexpectedly, because I'd been invited to a conference in Japan, I've been asked to give a short paper for the Kansai Chinese Painting Collection Association, so a study group in Japan to look at Chinese painting collections there. And going there, hearing the other papers that were given, talking to people, made me realize how important it was to write about the Japanese competition that Ferguson was facing. Mm -hmm. And that means specifically when he was buying art in Beijing, Japanese buyers were doing the same thing. And most importantly, the Japanese buyers were more familiar to the Chinese dealers. They had a better understanding of Chinese painting, and so they got to buy better works of art. And, you know, this is one of these really satisfying archival moments when I have this note Ferguson wrote down. I went to uh, Jing Xian's house, one of his main contacts, and I saw this painting, uh, but I couldn't buy it. And then going to Japan, I found out where that painting was. It's in uh, an Osaka collection. And quite clearly then, I could see that this dealer was making a choice between who gets my very best paintings. And, and I didn't just have to do with who could pay the best price, really. I think who had the best understanding, who deserves this painting, and, and it was a, a Japanese collector. So as I go forward as a scholar... I want to go in that direction. There's more to tell about Japanese and Americans and other Westerners competing for paintings, but at least I could got to put a small amount in the book. 
That's fantastic. Thank you, Laura. So as we get into or further into the book, we move, uh, let's move through some of the chapters. So at the very beginning, you talk about the book as a journey of discovery. This is Ferguson, it's the story of Ferguson um, discovering and working hard to define this idea, this category, or at least his idea and category of Chinese art. Now, Ferguson's time in China, um, and this is about from 1887 to 1943, as you cover it in the book, is actually a, a period of massive transformation. It's transformation from the Qing to the Chinese Republic, um, with responses to demands for various territorial and economic concessions coming from abroad, and also featuring invasions uh, by Japanese imperial powers, by Western imperial powers. So we get to kind of see these transformations in modern China through the eyes of Ferguson and through the eyes of his um, the objects that he's coming into contact with as well. The, the first part of the book looks at and explores Ferguson's intellectual development prior to the establishment of, the, uh, of uh, 1911. So it looks at the impact specifically of his encounters with Qing officials and with something called, and we'll talk a little bit about this, the North China branch of the Royal Asiatic Society. So to take us into this, um, since Ferguson is the focal point of the book, can you maybe take us into his early life by just saying a little bit about um, his life before he comes to China and how he comes to China? What do we need to understand about the young Ferguson before and as he comes to China for the first time in order to understand this part of the book as a foundation for what comes next? Well, I open the book with Ferguson describing himself as always on the jump. And he, he really was throughout his life. So he was born in a small town outside of Toronto. It's now a part of Toronto. But at that time, it was farmland. And he has these stories about walking seven miles to snow in the snow to school. And his children talk about that later. He, he said that and he really did. We checked it out and he really did walk that far. So think about a rural, a rural boy. His father was a minister. They didn't have a lot of money and they moved around from place to place um, following the father's appointments. So he, he got his education by gradually moving farther and farther away from that environment. He went um, to University in Boston, and right after that, moved on to seminary. And I think he he heard a talk. He heard about the opportunities to go preach in China. And I think for someone who's always looking outward to the next big thing, this looked so exciting to him. He knew he was good at languages, and he set off right away. So China was, I think of it as a way for him to move to something even bigger and better. And once he got there, he, he arrived as a missionary and spent 10 years as a missionary. And a big part of his work was founding one of the schools that later became part of Nanjing University. And that's why we later find his objects in Nanjing. And, you know, I think thinking about also what attracted me to the topic, I'm from Canada, and I think 
even though I wasn't thinking about it at the time, I liked this story of a Canadian meeting the larger world. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That I was thinking of that because I knew you were from Canada. I was thinking, oh, Ontario. I didn't realize you were mm-hmm. from Ontario. I wonder if there's a connection there. So he joins at age 21 the American Methodist Mission in Nanjing. He lives there for 10 years. And the first part of the book kind of takes us into um, the a kind of establishment of a growing network for him that later becomes really foundational for letting him do the kind of work in buying and collecting and conceptualizing Chinese art that occupies so much of the book. So in the 1890s, he meets and he spends time with some really influential figures who help foster a really serious interest in Chinese art in a a few different ways. They give him access to materials. They give him a perspective on antiquities that were prized by the kind of group of late Qing scholars and collectors that ostensibly they represent. So along the way, um, he's recruited to build and manage a Western-style school in Shanghai, and he helps um, purchase and develop a very small Chinese-language newspaper. Now, as um, we sort of move from his early life into the um, uh, his further life in China, we move into a chapter that introduces us to how he kind of develops a sort of interest, not just in painting, but also in kinds of objects that sustain his life and his life's work. Chapter two introduces us to his work under a Manchu official named Duanfeng, who influenced his professional rise and also his ability to appreciate Chinese artifacts. Now, one of the noteworthy things about his relationship with this official Duanfang is this is a period where he gets interested in something called Jinshir scholarship. And this becomes really important later on. So can you take us into that part of the story? What is Jinshir's scholarship here? What is important about it? And what's important about um, this in terms of our understanding of Ferguson? That's right. I talk about Jinshir's scholarship as one of the dominant modes of intellectual inquiry in the Qing dynasty, especially the later part of the Qing dynasty. So when Ferguson works for Duanfang, and in that capacity, he also gets to see Duanfang's objects, how Duanfang interacts with objects, he he gets introduced to this intellectual world of Jinshu's scholarship. So that's the practice of studying the inscriptions on ancient bronzes and steles, but more than that, also the official bronze weights that were used in the different dynasties. Um, When I first was getting into this, I was thinking, you know, here's Ferguson's catalog of the collection. There's a ruler from the Zhou dynasty. There's a weight from the Qin dynasty. What? Like, what are these about? But then when I got to see the rubbings, so a impression using ink on paper of the text that was inscribed on this weight or an article that Ferguson and an associate wrote about how long a specific ruler or measure was in a specific dynasty. These are questions that mattered a lot. I mean, it's, it's archaeological questioning and building up our, our knowledge of a specific time. 
And the, the Jinsha scholars were specifically concerned about, rather than looking at a text which has been written, rewritten through the ages, let's look right back at the inscription and compare characters. They were uh, extremely knowledgeable about the different form a character would take at a different time. And for Ferguson, it was, it was more than the, the specific uh, questions or mode of inquiry. It was being introduced to this whole world of really high-level knowledge, people who took objects very seriously and knew a lot about them. And the other important thing about Duan Fang was that he was a very outgoing, social guy. And also a point that grew as I wrote the book and is very important is that, you know, we might think of, especially when we use the English word for Jinsha studies, which is antiquarianism, automatically we think of someone in a stuffy study, studying these things from long, long ago. It's how connected can that be to the, to the modern world? But these scholars that Ferguson encountered, he met them because they were so opened to Westerners. Uh, they were already in the late uh, 1890s, and especially when the new century began in the 1900s, beginning to think about what these ancient bronzes um, or texts, steles, meant on an international stage. So Duan Fang, for example, sent some of his ancient bronzes to um, world expositions in Japan, in the United States. So while they're studying ancient China, while they're very interested in getting Chinese history right, they're also interested in showing off these objects to people in China like Ferguson and even to a wider audience around the world. Great. And so this part of the book takes us into the establishment of this network and also shows us um, Ferguson's entry into another network that we won't have time to talk about too much, but that's also an important part of the story. And this is his involvement with something called the North China branch of the Royal Asiatic Society, which impacts his scholarly development. And he, in turn, impacts and helps spark their interest in Chinese art. Now, if the first part of the book takes us all the way up to 1911, the second part of the book picks up where the Qing leaves off. Um, and so at the point where um, 1911, the Qing dynasty collapses at, and the, the new republic emerges, at this point, Ferguson doesn't have an employment in the new regime. And so he turns to other means of making money. And this is what brings us into the beginning of his relationship with the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So in 1912, he starts to act as a buyer for this museum. And you, you already told us a little bit about um, your experience with this museum. And for listeners who aren't familiar, this is the same uh, Metropolitan Museum that we were talking about before. So from 1912 to 1913, he assembles um, in Peking or in Beijing a collection of Chinese paintings and bronzes and pottery and other decorative objects for the Met. So to, to kind of bring us into this part of the story, because this is a really important 
important collection um, for the purposes of the story and our understanding of him. Where was he finding and purchasing these objects? Can you kind of take us into his experience finding and getting access to these materials um, in China and um, sort of what was notable or particular about that experience that we need to, to understand in order to understand him and this part of the story? Well, this, this is one of the areas I started to look at right at the beginning of the project because people knew Ferguson, the little we knew about them, as someone who had, and he was talked about as someone who had donated paintings to the Met. He didn't donate them. He was uh, hired as a buyer. And they were looking for someone, the Metropolitan Museum was looking for someone right at this time because American museums, they were growing, they were becoming professional museums, and they were also, people were looking at China. It's just after the revolution, uh, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston had, had a growing collection. So the Met was looking at China and looking for someone to help them. Ferguson presented himself as someone who knew the field and could buy them everything they wanted. So he traveled back to China and started to contact people, officials that he'd worked with building that school in Shanghai and got very excited right away. They're, they're offering me a painting from uh, the Song Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty. It's everyone I need. You'll have you'll have all the great masters of China and spent quite a lot of money right away. And then later became a little more uh, knowledgeable about who is out there selling paintings and got a few more from other collections in Beijing. And these were mainly Qing officials who were in financial trouble now that the dynasty had fallen and looking for people to sell their art to. They'd also been selling and buying before. It's not as if suddenly a collector has to sell off his collection, but this is the, the movement. And Ferguson writes about these wonderful paintings, sends them, ships them to the Met. And when they arrive, the staff there is a little taken aback. <laughs> this is not quite what we expected. We don't really know about Chinese art, but these don't look so good to us. And it had been the story that Ferguson looked at Chinese art like a Chinese connoisseur. And when these paintings, and I, I focus on the paintings, even though there are other things, arrived in New York, people just didn't know how to look at them. They didn't understand them. It was too early in the history of collecting. But what we see instead is this really rocky time in American collections of Chinese art. Ferguson was new. There was quite a lot that he bought that was um, perhaps a worthwhile painting, but, but much, much more recent than he thought. Nothing um, from the Tang Dynasty or Song Dynasty. Mm -hmm. So Ferguson was new. The people looking at it were new to Chinese art, but at the same time, they knew they wanted really good paintings. So it's it's a very confusing state of affairs. And Ferguson argued for his paintings as hard as he could. Eventually, they all entered the Met collection. and But we can't quite understand it as someone who's new more than those receivers at the Met. Instead, it was this real mix of the West meeting China. 
Now, this is a really like fascinating part of the story, I think, um, for any listeners or readers who like to go to an art museum. I mean, even if you don't imagine yourself, you know, as being interested in China in particular, because often, you know, we go into these buildings, we look at the exhibits that have been put up around us, and there's a kind of taking for granted, or there can be a kind of taking for granted that, okay, these are representative of some sort of important or beautiful element of the past of XYZ place, without really appreciating or having an insight into how one particular object or several objects gets to occupy that space in the first place. And one of the things that the story that you're telling us of Ferguson really does is to give us a way to start asking those kinds of questions and to really see, um, you know, something that's in a frame in front of our faces on the wall in a museum, actually in a completely different way when you start understanding the history of how it got there. So thank you for that, Lara, because I think this is potentially really transformative, sort of well beyond um, how we think about Chinese painting in particular. So as um, in this part of the story, and you've already kind of talked a little bit about this, um, uh, one of the things that's happening in, um, in China while he's collecting, and when you talked about the, uh, the Japanese buyers and their competition that they presented, this was a way of getting at this. Like you mentioned um, part of the story. So even though Ferguson thought that the buyers that he was buying from are giving him like their very best stuff, they were actually saving their best works for others. And so there's this gap between what he thought he was buying and what they knew they were selling. And so this results in all kinds of difficulties between him and the Met, including, you know, some of the paintings wind up uh, being forgeries. There are very different expectations of um, authenticity and how to authenticate and, and understand the provenance of an object. One of the difficulties also, though, rests in the power and the emergence of work on Asian art by another scholar who is becoming very prominent at this time, who listeners might be familiar with for his work, um, inspiring people like Ezra Pound or sort of in the same conversations as Ezra Pound, and that is Ernest Fenelosa. So can you just say a little bit about the role of Fenelosa in this story? What does he have to do with this and how is his understanding of Chinese art differing from that of Ferguson and causing problems for Ferguson? Well, Penalosa approached Chinese painting from a Japanese perspective. He went to Japan, learned a lot about Japanese art and also about Jap the Chinese art that was appreciated in Japan. And he came away with the conclusion that any, anything produced in China up until, until the Song Dynasty was, was great. That was the main current, the best of Asian art as a whole. But after that, things go downhill in China, and Japan instead takes up the lead. So basically, nothing in China from the Ming Dynasty or the Qing Dynasty is worth looking at. And this was accepted in the United States in large part because he was one of the only voices. And Part of the reason people wrote about Ferguson as this fascinating figure was because he was a voice saying, this is, this is just absurd. Look at the scholarship in China. Look at the painting that happened in those later dynasties. And Ferguson was honest, too, writing that 
I would rather look at a Song Dynasty painting. But there's also some very good stuff in the later dynasties that are worth looking looking at. And not just in his collecting, but also in his writing, because he wrote several volumes on the history of Chinese painting, Chinese art. He insisted over and over that you have to look at Chinese art from the Chinese perspective. It just doesn't make sense to look at it from the Japanese perspective. I'm in China, my associates are in China, and, and really, I don't feel like their voices are being heard. My voice is being heard either. So why, so Fenelosa is at this point fundamentally differing from um, Ferguson's perspective and is quite prominent in these circles. Now, despite these difficulties, despite the difficulties that Ferguson has um, with the Metropolitan, he still, and and one of the chapters in the book goes into this um, circumstance in detail, although we won't have time to replicate that, he still contributes meaningfully to the development of Chinese art in America. And this happens not only through his supplying paintings and artifacts to the new and sort of growing and emerging museums of fine art in the U.S. in the early 20th century, but also by delivering, um, you, you take us into his delivering of a lecture, um, a very uh, prominent lecture, the Scammon Lecture at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1918. So he's starting to become an authority. He's starting to both speak about, write about, and also produce the objects that embody um, the sort of changing and growing category of Chinese art in America. Now, in part three, this takes us from America back to China. Ferguson begins to assemble a private collection um, late in life as he's nearing retirement. Part three of the book looks closely at this collection, and this is now his private collection, not the collection that he masses as a buyer for other people. And he looks at this, or the the part of the book um, looks at this collection to understand how these objects represented the particular kind of history, the particular kind of artistic achievement, and a particular kind of cultural capital um, for Ferguson that was important um, for us to understand him and what he was doing. So in the 1920s and in the 1930s, even though he's continuing to buy for clients, he also begins to buy for himself and for his personal collection. So let's talk a little bit about the nature of that collection. You say in this part of the book, and in chapter 7 in particular, you say and you show, I think, quite compellingly that archaeology the discourse of archaeology, the practice of archaeology, the changing field of archaeology, winds up becoming really, really important to Ferguson as he is understanding and deciding what to put into and what to purchase um, as, a, as entries in his personal collection. So let's talk about that for a little, while, a little bit, a little while. Can you talk a little bit about archaeology and the importance of that for what's happening with Ferguson and his personal stuff? Right. I'll, I'll start us going back just a little bit to the Jinshu scholarship and, and Duan Fang. So when Ferguson is working for meeting with Duan Fang, Duan Fang was also acquiring ancient bronzes that had just been dug out of the ground. And this wasn't a formal excavation, but a railroad was built. Look at this magnificent set of ritual bronzes that was unearthed in the province I rule, I'm going to get it for my collection. So, so Duan Fang is getting new discoveries. So 
for Ferguson, the gene practice was also about acquiring and then studying new discoveries. And, and it, this flowed into Republican era archaeology. And he, he started to work alongside, uh, sometimes they would collaborate on an article or a, a translation. Some of the younger men, like Ma Hung, who was, he became the curator, uh, the director of the Palace Museum, and he was involved in archaeological excavations. And so these new discoveries using more modern methods, uh, being looked at through the gene ship perspective, it all flows in Ferguson's acquaintance with with Chinese art. The other group of men he's he's working with are the people who are staffing China's new museums, so the Palace Museum specifically in, in Beijing. And he worked with them on the group of experts who took the palace objects one by one and authenticated them, decided on, on the date. So working with a lot of men in modern careers. And, you know, we'd never, we'd never say that Ferguson practiced archaeology. He didn't go out in the field, but he was constantly reading the articles, talking to the people doing the work and staying up on, on what was happening. Great. Now you talk about the importance of rubbings um, in particular to his collection. So could you say a little bit about that? Because that was also a really striking part of the visual archive that you are producing in the uh, photographs and images in your book. One of the, the kinds of objects that I was really attracted to, and that's partly because they're still a bit mysterious to me, are the rubbings of ancient bronzes. And the ones that I reproduce most of are the full figure rubbing. So this is positioning the paper around the object and then reconstructing it so that what you have on the page is this wonderful black and white impression that looks almost three-dimensional of a bronze ritual vessel. And having these for jeansha collectors and also for Ferguson was almost like having the bronze object because you could study the design. It was very clearly portrayed. And the inscription, if this inscription perhaps was in the mouth of the vessel, and there'd be an extra part of the rubbing that was an impression of the inscription and then pasted somewhere else on the paper. So you could look at your bronze, you could look at the characters very clearly. And Chincha's scholarship was was social. So you would send these rubbing to friends, you would look at them together, you would give them away, and then your friends would also write inscriptions on the rubbing. So the end product are either a, a scroll-sized, full-figure rubbing with inscriptions surrounding it, just like a painting would be uh, full of inscriptions. Or they might be in an album. So a set of bronzes. Ferguson has several albums that portray Duan Fang's bronze collection. Um, multiple pages with the different objects on them. And then at the end, commentary written by other respected scholars or Duan Fang's assistants. And then most importantly in Ferguson's collection for him is he would add his own inscription at the end. And sometimes in English, uh, but also sometimes in Chinese. And so he would write, you know, this 
here I've put together an album of bronzes belonging to this most respected collector. And I can remember as I look at them, the, the sincerity with which he looked at these objects. And, and then he would probably, he, Ferguson would have a friend help him write this in calligraphy. And that would become part of the object. So what I came to see was by gathering these objects, by putting them all together, Ferguson was methodically and lovingly transforming himself into a, a Jinsha collector, transforming himself into somebody like Duanfang or others with very high imperial degrees, the ultimate scholar that, that he met in China. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Now he donates um, his personal collection, which at this point is over, or he donate, he donates at least a, over um, a thousand objects from his personal collection in 1934 to the University of Nanking. And this collection is actually exhibited in China in Beijing in 1935. So when this is exhibited um, in 1935 in China, this is a period where in the same year, there's another exhibition that he's not part of. And so chapter eight uh, takes us into this, these sort of 1935 bookended exhibitions, one in Beijing, one in London, um, the former of which it really highlights his collection and the latter of which doesn't involve him at all, that represent these different ways of thinking about what Chinese art is and also give us a way to kind of have a perspective on Ferguson's presence or absence in these different views of what Chinese art is. So it's a really, really interesting part of the story. Um, Can you uh, maybe bring us into a little part of this story by talking a bit about his exhibition in Beijing? Um, What was in the the exhibition? What was it like? And what were some of the important responses to it? Well, it was, at first it was simply... uh, surprising and really fascinating for me to think that this Western collection in China could end up being shown in the Forbidden City. How could that happen? And when I put the story together, I found that the imperial objects had been moved south um, in the early 1930s for fear of a Japanese invasion. So they were out of Beijing. They were in Shanghai at at the time. And that leaves these palaces empty. So, and Ferguson had a relationship with the director of the government museum connected to the palace museum, but not exactly the same. And so it made arrangements that one, he would donate his collection to Nanjing, but there's nowhere there to show it. There's no museum. There's no important building where it can be put. What if we show it in the Palace Museum until Nanjing is ready. So that was arranged, and he, Ferguson, as always, he's very involved in every detail, and he sets out a plan for displaying some of his best paintings and and bronzes. Um, I don't know if there were rubbings on the wall there. I think there might have, those might have been kept out of the public view, and the Reaction in Beijing was really, really complimentary. Uh, a lot of Ferguson's friends um, 
museum leaders, artists, collectors commented on how, you know, look at this Westerner. He's, he's bought all these objects in China and he's not sending them abroad like so many others. In fact, he's, he's given them to China and he's showing them here. So in a nationalist sense, people were really pleased about this. And they commented quite seriously on his objects, some of them saying, well, you know, this painting, I appreciate it, but it's not as good as this one. So serious critique as well as um, a lot of appreciation for Ferguson. Um, and it was just, it was really um, helped me see, like you said, the story in larger perspective to realize that Ferguson had so much influence in, in Beijing, he could get his collection into the Palace Museum. At the same time, over in London, one of the most important events of the early 20th century, the um, Burlington Exhibition of Chinese Art, Ferguson wasn't a part of, and that made me think of Ferguson as a resident of China at a time of global imperialism when people in China don't have the kind of power that collectors in the West did. So that, that was an important context. Great. And this issue of power um, and sort of power, global power relative to, uh, or, or global power of China relative to the West and vice versa, really um, becomes a theme that follows us into the last part of the book as well. So even though, as you mentioned very early in our conversation, Ferguson's collection, uh, ultimately a lot of it goes into storage and it, it hasn't been regularly open to the public, he did have quite a bit of influence also as a scholar and a writer of books and articles and essays and also indexes. And the last part of the book takes us into that uh, aspect of the story. Now, taking off from um, what you just mentioned and, and the, the issue of power and China globally, this brings us into, I think, a really important part of his development as a scholar, how he's writing, who he's writing against, and who he's writing to. So you show in this part four of the book that he's consistently arguing, and this is a quotation from the book, that in the realm of Chinese art studied by itself, its own standards must prevail. So he's trying to communicate what you call here a native perspective. This becomes really important um, in his writings about Chinese art in part because his idea of, as, as you show here in the book, China as in, in terms of continuity, in terms of this kind of coherent whole that's largely absent early on of Western influence, really starts being if not challenged, then um, complicated by the scholarship that he starts producing on bronzes in Chinese art. And you're showing in this part of the book how, as a writer, not just a collector and not just a buyer, but a writer about Chinese art, as he's trying to pay attention to what's happening in the realm of archaeology and what's happening in other sort of Chinese areas of scholarship on antiquities, this starts to... Um, impact how he's thinking about this idea of native, this idea of China as a coherent whole, and, and how this shapes his idea of the art that comes from it. So maybe, um, since this is such um, an interesting part of the story, can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of what are some of the ways that his ideas about what is included under Chinese art, and what uh, is Chinese about Chinese art, are kind of 
developing or changing in the context of his later work as a writer and a scholar paying attention to these archaeological um, discoveries? Well, at the beginning, as we, we talked about, he was part of the Royal Asiatic Society in Shanghai, and he was encountering articles about their biblically inspired suggesting that, well, maybe Chinese culture and language really came from Babylon. And, you know, these were new archaeological discoveries in the West, so it wasn't totally beyond the realm of possibility. People were speculating, did Chinese culture really come maybe from the West? And to Ferguson, that he he did not believe that. He, He was focused instead on China's culture is so rich. There's been this unbroken stream that has come from ancient times all the way through to the present, and it simply is not helpful to talk about influences on Chinese culture from the outside. But he carries this through in his scholarship until, on the one hand, in the 1920s and 1930s, he's corresponding with um, American scholars and Chinese scholars who are showing evidence that there was some really interesting cultural contact between the cradle of Chinese civilization, their neighbors to the West, you know, a lot of interaction in ancient times. And he just can't accept that into his theory near in, in the later part of his life. He continues to write about how I want I want you all to understand that Chinese culture is so um, so rich on its own. We don't need anything from the outside to help us explain it. And he would even talk about how calligraphy, paintings, bronzes, they were all created by this artist that had within him Chinese culture. And it becomes a kind of totalizing statement that we can easily criticizing how ancient bronze uh, working with the molds and the materials, you know, is the spirit of Chinese culture that motivating him? That doesn't make sense to us right now. But Ferguson's point was to fight against anyone who was saying either that Chinese culture all comes from the outside or they're saying, well, China didn't really produce anything all that impressive. Um, He's fighting against them and he can't except something more complex. Right. So as we, thank you, Lara. Um, So as we get to the last part of the book, there's a chapter that is really dear to my heart here, um, just because of a, I'm very interested in note-taking practices and the organization of knowledge and um, notebooks and things like that. And you have an entire chapter that um, shows us his work, which actually winds up becoming really important and really influential as an indexer. And he says early on in this chapter, um, in, in a letter, I think, late in his life to his daughter, I think my life could best be described as that of an indexer. Okay, so maybe this is tongue-in-cheek, maybe not, but his work as an indexer actually winds up becoming fascinating. And you show us, among the many really beautiful images of um, Ferguson's collections and Ferguson's Ferguson's work um, that uh, occupy a really important place in your book, there are some really striking images of 
the work of putting together these indexes. And it's fascinating because you really bring out the importance of the process of indexing as a very material, physical process. And at least for me, you really made me think of these indexes, at least in their early stages, as material, physical objects. So could you say a little bit about these indexes? Um, what's important from your perspective uh, that we understand about these indexes and, and or the process of making them for us to have a rich understanding of Ferguson in the context of this story. So we're talking about his index of recorded paintings in Chinese texts and also his index of recorded bronzes in Chinese texts. So this is a massive book. Every instance we can find a certain painting in a Chinese text and they were used widely up until we could find most everything on the internet. So um, for about 75 years. And these came about, I realized, not as, all right, let's, I'm going to sit down and make this index, but it was publishing his notes and the labor of many assistants over the years. He needed to know where that painting was mentioned as he tried to prove to the Met that it was authentic and then write about it in his book. And so he'd compile these notes and he's described actually as buying books and then cutting out the section where it talked about a certain painting and pasting it on a new page. So it is very, very physical. And, you know, these are probably a, a lot of publishing is going on in the early 20th century. For him, they're not expensive books, and he just does it in the most practical way he can, especially with many people working working for him. And he had the help of some really noted scholars who were might be indebted to their teacher who was indebted to Ferguson. It's all part of this really wide network of contacts that he, he developed. And Without that kind of commitment by Ferguson and just style of working, I probably couldn't have written nearly as much about him. The, the scrapbooks I looked at in Nanjing are also a kind of, a, a, you know, a record, a lot of pages, again, pasted to the scrapbooks. Um, and so, you know, in the end, that's what he gave to us that was more lasting than his theories that came out of a specific era of, of Chinese art history. So Lara, in the last section of the book, you take us into the latest stage of sort of responsiveness to modern change that you show us has characterized official and artistic culture that Ferguson took part in throughout the book. And this latest stage, or one of the latest stages that is featured in chapter 12, is the invasion by the Japanese in the 1930s. So can you say, as a way of kind of bringing this story to the close, or to a close, can you say a little bit about the way that Ferguson responded to Japanese invasion in the 1930s and what's important that we understand about that in order for us to understand this sort of last part of the story? Well, it, looking at Ferguson's long life in China helped me to see some major historical events in a more as if I were there perspective and as if I were living through them. So you know, he lived through the 1911 revolution, and then he, after working for the Qing dynasty, he worked for the warlord presidents. And that doesn't sound 
good to those of us who focus a lot more on nationalist China, the Republican era. Those warlords were not very savory characters. And then also after the, the, the Japanese invaded Beijing, he stayed there. He kept socializing with the Japanese as he had done before. And he talks about how, you know, I can't leave the city now. I'm, I'm a fixture here. And besides, my wife is too sick to move, but I'm, I'm going to stay and do the best I can. And it helped me understand Ferguson as someone who he made his way through life by taking opportunities and by seeing things on the bright side and jumping from uh, position to position, Qing Dynasty advisor, art buyer, and he says he, he goes with the flow. And I wanted us to understand that for him, being ambitious and being always at work, even if it's for a pretty uh, uh, a leader who's who's also doing, um, you know, not following democratic principles. For him, this was just he was he was always trying to be useful, and he was optimistic about where China would be at the end. And you know, looking at it now, a hundred years later, when he would say in occupied China, he'd say, you know what, China will have the last word. The Japanese are ruling now. I'm here with them. But China's going to show herself to be strong in the end. And he was right. It just took, it took time. So Lara, thank you so much. I think that's a perfect way to bring um, the story to a close. And it's, it's a really fascinating story, as I hope is um, clear to listeners, just from even from just our conversation. So there's a lot about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that you would want to mention for listeners and, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet become readers? Well, I think because there was a lot, a, a lot to talk about, we didn't get a chance much to talk about Ferguson the person. And I was really glad that this could be a story about Chinese art and the whole concept changing, morphing, but also that I got to know this person. And as I turned the dissertation into the book, part of that process was also developing. You know, where was Ferguson in the 1910s, his native country is at war, one of his sons died, he's trying to run across the ocean to do things in China and then be in New York, be back in China. And, and some of those chapters are the most fun to read. And so I think that people could pick this up either, you know, to look at what they've been wondering about the Metropolitan Collection, but also just to hear, I think, a good story about a man a hundred years ago and, and what, what it was like to raise a family and try to make a living in these two countries. Great. So now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, what's next Thank for you? you? Is, is there any projects or are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? As I said, these, these rubbings are still something I don't completely understand in the sense of how they were valued and where they lie between being an art object themselves and being a reproduction, a useful reproduction of an object. And so my next project is to look at collections of rubbings and who was gathering them, what kind of political meaning it had, what kind of cultural meaning, and look at that in relation to the way uh, 
photography was and other um, technologies were taking off in the early 20th century. Great. Well, thank you so much, Lyra. Best of luck with that project. And thanks so much for talking about this one. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.